Hi, my name is Melanie Reyna, and I'll be going over the topic on race and racism um, as it pertains to social dynamics, and I, I actually want to get into social structures as well, um, and the literature I'll be referencing to is Race and Racisms by Tanya Marie Golosh Boza. Um, the reason why I'll be covering this literature is because as I was reading it, I actually was able to relate to a lot of the material and this was definitely an eye-opener not only in you know my personal life but also as it uh, pertains to my business and the people that I encounter on a, on a regular basis. I can honestly say that this material has actually changed my perspective and how I I want to say maybe view or perceive um, the dynamics that I see you know, in day-to-day life, in just simple conversations or even, you know, incidences I might witness. Um, okay, so without further ado, I'm going to go ahead and jump right into it. Okay, sorry guys, just one quick edit. The author's name is actually Tanya Maria Golosh-Boza. Um, sorry for the confusion. So I want to start off with going over the definition of racism. As it pertains to the book, it's stated in page 3. Racism refers to both the belief that races are populations whose physical differences are linked to significant cultural and social differences within a hierarchy, and the practice of subordinating races believed to be inferior. The book also states that the word race refers to a group of people who share physical and cultural traits. The idea of race implies that the people of the world can be divided into biologically discrete and exclusive groups based on physical and cultural traits. Race is a social construction, an idea we endow with meaning through daily interactions. It has no biological basis. This might seem an odd statement as a physical difference between a Kenyan, a Swede, and a Han Chinese for example, are obvious. However, these physical differences do not necessarily mean that the world can be divided into discrete racial groups. If you were to walk from Kenya to Sweden to China, you would notice incremental graduations in physical differences between people across space, and and it would be difficult to decide where to draw the line between Africa and Europe and between Europe and Asia. There may be genetic differences between Kenyans and Swedens, but the genetic variations within Kenyan population are actually greater than those between Swedens and Kenyans. Smedley, 2007, Udall, E-T-A-L, 2016. Reflecting back on the text just read, I want to go ahead and touch on the fact that race is something that was socially constructed. Um, It's the concepts that People have these differences between skin tone and, you know, cultural backgrounds and how these, these differences can basically create or establish superiority um, just based on the amount of melanin one individual has in, I guess, within their skin tone. I don't believe that the, I guess, tone of one's skin or the background one comes from really... I guess, reflects in the ability of a person's intellect. 
or their ability to learn. For me, that's just completely biased and uh, it's really sad to say, but as we continue on with the rest of, I guess, our dialogue, I want to also state that we have to be aware that racism and race was built in a world of, I guess, predominantly white individuals. This was a state's that were colonized and through colonization they had this ability to force uh, assimilation with or within different uh, social groups different um i guess racial groups and as i continue to i guess go over some of the topics i want to just note that that's my reason um i guess my inspiration to to continue reading is because most of the projections that people endure are false and really having an understanding or I I guess even a better awareness of why people are subjected to racism um, I guess allows an individual a better understanding as to how to I guess go about um, I don't want to say reestablishing but, I mean, it's kind of what it is. It's reestablishing yourself as far as your own personal ideologies and how you face different uh, situations. As, you know, a lot of us may have racial tendencies or tendencies that are, you know, racially uh, biased. And we're, for the most part, unaware. And a lot of it is is due to ignorance and, I guess, not really expanding or... I guess putting our mindset in in a neutral place where we're kind of looking at all sides of the perspective rather than just our own um, individual viewpoints. Okay, jumping right back into it. On page 33, I want to go ahead and discuss prejudice, discrimination, and institutional racism. Okay, jumping right back into it. I'm on page 33. I'm going to go ahead and touch on prejudice, discrimination, and institutional racism. Racism encompasses both racial prejudice, the belief that people belong to distinct races, and that these racial groups have innate heretical differences that can be measured and judged, and racial discrimination, the practice of treating people differently on the basis of their race. For example, an employer can think African Americans are less competent than whites. This belief constitutes racial prejudice. When that employer decides to hire a white person instead of an equally qualified black person, that decision may be considered racial discrimination. Both prejudice and discrimination are widespread in U.S. society. Many Americans, even those who do not believe that they are racially prejudiced, have implicit bias that operate at a level of subconsciousness. It is hard to avoid these biases because of the barrage of racialized messages we receive in media and through our personal networks. Racial prejudice is implicit biases inevitably led to racial discrimination. So within this context, the author is going ahead and stating that even with these, uh, I guess, dynamics in what we call an equal opportunity state or, you know, equal higher opportunities, a lot of the times 
this really just doesn't even cut it because there's already these biased opinions set in place. We already have these these social constructs that are basically oppressing anybody of color. You have this belief that whites, um, I, I really hate saying this, but whites are superior to a lot of other races. And this is going to go ahead and reflect into the topics of, um, I guess, income and housing as I, as I proceed on. And I want to go ahead and, like I said, keep an open mind to this material. Um, it, it touched me in a way that made me really reflect on, I guess, the way I was brought up in, you know, my community and the way, I guess, education was kind of handled within different school districts. And this even goes as far as my workplace because as, you know, uh, I guess Latina female in a male-dominated industry, um, there's definitely some dynamics that, you know, I've approached and or have been faced with. So this material really does give me a better understanding as to how to deal with these situations and how to kind of, I don't know, maybe market myself better or kind of try to deflect certain situations. Um, and I honestly think it's material that can benefit us all with a better understanding. As stated on page 35 of Race and Racism, um, the author goes ahead and says, researchers have consistently found that racial discrimination is pervasive. One study of Department of Defense employees revealed that nearly half of black employees had heard racist jokes in the previous year, Fugin 2001. Another study conducted by Fugin and McKinley 2003 revealed that 80% of black respondents had encountered racial hostility in public places. One African-American secretary detailed a con consequences of consultant discrimination as follows. I had to see several doctors because of the discrimination and went through a lot of stress. And though my blood pressure, and then my blood pressure went on the rise. Here the author has provided us an example of individual racism and how it can infect an individual within the workplace. Now, this doesn't necessarily limit the stress or disease just to the workplace. Um, like I had stated earlier, this is something that kind of goes on in the streets, in the grocery stores, in schools. Um, and the effects of stress is, is real. You know, there's evidence stating that stress is a trigger for a lot of illnesses. And this is me talking from personal experience. I went through a time period where I was receiving a lot of stress and I was in the hospital quite frequently because of it. So this isn't something that kind of just goes away once, you know, the doors are closed or, you know, once you step away from the individual inflicting this racism. Racism goes beyond that. And unfortunately, a lot of times it goes unaddressed and the individuals really suffer because of it. As I progress forward, I want to go ahead and jump to page 40. Um, the author states, Police officers are consistently more likely to pull over and arrest black men than they were white men. Blacks are more likely to get harsher sentences or even death penalties. 
Gott's Chalk, 2015. When we look at different systems, when we look at the system as a whole and see that the criminal justice apparatus more harshly affects blacks than whites, and when we see that racial discrimination is consistent and systematic, we can say that criminal justice system is a prime example of institutional racism. Institutional racism also exists in other institutions, including educational systems, housing, and the labor market. So as we reflect back onto this text, this is simply stating that there's no escaping racism. Racism is at all fronts, and it's really a factor when it comes down to human development. Again, racism is something that is reflect onto the people, onto the populations, and oppresses the development of children at a young start. This racism is carried on to their young adulthood, into their adulting stages, and it's something that might be even reciprocated to their children and the families to come. Unless we learn how to amend the systems that were set in place. As I continue on page 104, the topic of racism in the media will set the stage on just how we digest this racism with modern technology. The page reads, the media feeds us, the media fed us, the media feeds us a constant stream of images that shape our beliefs. The media also promote and reinforce stereotypes, widely held but fixed and over and oversimplified images or ideas of types of people or things. In early American film, for example, people of color were overwhelmingly portrayed in stereotypical roles. Native Americans as silent sheep as silent sh as silent chiefs, Arabs as mysterious or villainous desert seragans, uh, or villainous desert sheiks, Latinas as sexual objects, and African Americans as maids or buffoons. Fast forward to the 21st century, and we find more nuanced depictions. Nevertheless, significant traces of historical stereotypes remain contemporary in film, television, and new media. They found that across theatrical releases and scripted series in 2014 and 2015, only 28.3% of all speaking characters were people of color, yet the U.S. population is 37.9% people of color. As previous studies have followed, Shows and movies are most likely, I'm sorry, shows and movies are mostly black and white. 71.7% of all characters were white, 12.2% were black, 5.8% were Hispanic Latinx, 5.1% were Asian, and 2.3% were Middle Eastern. Over half of all shows and movies featured no speaking Asian characters, and 22% featured no black speaking characters. There was even a disparity in there was even a disparity at the directing level. Only 13% of directors directors were people of color. Notably, out of 414 shows and films included in the study, only two were directed by black women. Latinx stand out as most as the most underrepresented group in American entertainment.
and all people of color are underrepresented as leading characters and intuit and in ex and in executive roles. Smith, E. T. A. L. Two thousand sixteen, Yule, two thousand sixteen. Nancy Yulin, two thousand sixteen, explains that whites are sixty two point six percent of the population, yet make up of seventy four point one percent of all speaking roles in films, eighty point seven percent of all cable TV leads, and eighty three point three percent of all film leads and 93.5% all broadcast TV leads. Whites also account for 81% of all directors and in and an astonishing 60 I'm sorry 96% of all television network and studio heads. So within this content alone we're already seeing that the media is overwhelmed with these, I guess, these notions, these ideologies that are created by white individuals. You have more than half of the percent. Um, now, this is me just reflecting back on my thoughts and, you know, how I perceive this. You have a large population of whites controlling media, and this media depicts not only you know, social classes, stereotypes, um, any and everything, you know, this is where we consume a lot of the material that inspires us and our, and our thoughts and our emotions. You know, I know individuals who spend a large portion of their times following TV series or, you know, movies that go on for, you know, two, three, sometimes four, six, you know, I guess new releases. So with this consumption rate so high, and with this being the supply of how we perceive certain classes, how would it not then reflect or influence how an individual responds or thinks about a certain race or, I guess, racism in general? Noting back to the representation of Latina women, you know, being sexualized. That is something that I can relate to personally, and I can say it's not a good feeling. It's not the way you want to be, I guess, perceived. Again, from personal experience, being sexualized kind of belittles you in the sense of a lot of people then don't really take into mind what you have to say, your thoughts, your your emotions, you know, you just become an object. And we're people, we're individuals, we are much more than objects, we are much more than stereotypes. Now this topic on stereotypes and the media, it can go on and on and I'm sure, you know, there's enough material on that to make another, I guess, podcast system, but as of right now, I'm kind of running out of time and I want to go ahead and wrap this up, so I'm going to go ahead and run through my notes real quick. I mentioned earlier that we were going to go ahead and touch on um, educational inequality and housing inequality. And uh, real briefly, I'll go ahead and quote something from page 159. Um, I did some reading on this and this one kind of struck me a little hard. So the background on this is um, when schools were established to basically assimilate um, Native Americans, 
these Native American kids were, you know, placed into these schooling systems that were then, I guess, used to strip them from their tradition, from who they identified as, as far as, like, their clothes, their practices. Um, it's a really brutal one, guys. This goes into talking about how, you know, they were punished for minor things or, you know, tied up and it's really not it's really not a good uh good concept to visualize anyway so on page 159 it says native american children who went to boarding schools were often underfed at the schools and many became ill or died in 1926 a comprehensive study of indian schools showed that the boarding school's budget for feeding children was only 11 cents a day a uh-huh. I'm sorry, $1.41 a day in today's currency and not nearly enough to provide a reasonable diet. Because of undernourishment, the children often scum to disease such as tuberculosis. Watch us 2004. Many boarding schools across the United States today became, across the United States today have burial grounds for Native American children who died while at school. Following the official end of assimilation programs in 1993, these boarding schools were either reformed or closed. The repercussions of these institutions, however, continue to be felt. Genevieve Williams, who was born in 1922, went to an Indian school as a young girl. She remembers being forced to scrub floors with her hands and knees and being beaten for speaking her native language. She recalls girls being flogged for wetting the bed. When she returned home at age 14, she no longer recognized her mother. Having never bonded with her own mother, Williams found it hard to nurture her own. Her husband had physic her husband had been physically abused at school and also and this also affected his ability to raise their children. King 2009 2008 So within this text, we have an example of this social structure within education that was used to rip people of their identities. You have this young girl, this young adult, returning back home and not even realizing or recognizing her own mother. And then to feel so disconnected with whom she is as an individual, she lacks, I guess, the maternal instinct or emotional connection to kind of give that love to her children now that might be a strange concept but if you lack the ability to give yourself self-love because i mean let's be honest guys in times of abuse typically you know we neglect to give ourselves self-love so if we're disconnected within ourselves and we then have these children that we have to care for How can we reciprocate that love if we don't understand it? And this is a system that was set in place until 1993. I mean, that's fairly recent, guys. And though some were closed, some were only reformed. So you still have similar concepts built within the walls of this institution. Now, one might say, how does this affect, you know, your housing or your income? Well, our housing is kind of a relation to our income. If we can't sustain a fair amount to live, 
because of racial prejudice, then we're confined to an alternative lifestyle, typically in more affordable communities. Page 212 in Race and Racism states that wealth is a sum total of a person's assets, cash in the bank, and the value of all property, not only land, but houses, cars, stocks, and buildings, I'm sorry, and bonds, and retirement savings minus debt. It is something built up over a lifetime and passed on to the next generations through inheritance. Wealth inequality in the United States is staggering. 1% of Americans known one percent of Americans own nearly half of the wealth in the country. Norton and Arley, 2011. Despite this tremendous inequality, the idea persists that if you work hard, you'll succeed. The ideology is deeply rooted in American psyche and sustained through particular media and folklore. Yet people work hard all their lives and die with no assets. Again, we're reflecting back on that American dream on, you know, the media stating, you know, we want that glam life. We want to consume and consume in large quantities. So you have this ideology of what your life should be and I guess how to get there. But then you have all of these oppressions kind of built up or just these obstacles that keep an individual from achieving that balance, that ultimate goal. Why? Because they're dealing with racial prejudice. So in a world that states that we can achieve any and all by working hard, I mean, it's perceivable, but some may have to work a lot harder than others just to achieve maybe a smaller percentage of what a white privileged individual may receive. So in what aspect is that truly fair? And as stated in the text, only 1% of Americans own more than half of the wealth. So in that sense, they're leaving larger quantities or I guess larger amounts of um, inheritance behind for whomever. So this, you know, large amount of wealth is only being cycled in through certain families. Now, what happens to an individual whom doesn't have, uh, I guess, a lot of resources, a lot of wealth, a lot of, um, I guess, even property at that? So the inheritance that they leave is next to none. It could be zero. So in the sense of funds being cycled in and out through the rich and the poor, it's not really... I guess, perceivable in that manner because, I mean, the poor gets taxed and though rich people may get taxed as well, the dollar amounts are different. If I only have $10 and you tax me two, now I only have eight. If I have a thousand and you only tax me 20, well, guess what? I still have, you know, over 900 plus. Now, I'm not saying that's the logistics of taxes. I'm giving just a quick representation as far as, you know, what a dollar amount is in different social classes. So with this affecting, you know, our our income, racism affects our income. It affects our education. It affects our housing. 
it affects our communities, it affects the way we even perceive ourselves. And with this being such a large topic, why is it something that's not really spoken of about? Why does this remain taboo? This is Melanie Reyna. I'm going to leave you on that. Um, I'm going to go ahead and uh, bid you a farewell. I, I wish I could have covered a lot more, but I mean, this is kind of heavy material. And I'm just barely reaching the skins of it. So, um, yeah. Thank you guys for listening. And whew, until next time. <laughs>